Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of God be upon you all. Welcome to the Ahmed Khan podcast. I'm excited to finally begin this endeavor. It's something that I've been planning for some time, and alhamdulillah, it's finally begun. I would like to begin by introducing our first guest. Brother Bassam, who is ethnic, ethnically Palestinian, has completed his bachelor's degree in political science and has also completed a master's in education from UBC. He is currently a teacher at Iqra Islamic School and an educational researcher based in Vancouver. He is currently exploring the challenges that educators have when covering the Muslim world in the classroom. And he is currently working on reforming the Islamic studies curriculum for school districts in the Lower Mainland. Thank you for joining us, bro. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to do this. Inshallah, looking forward to it, looking forward to it. And the theme that we're going to focus on today is, is the power of stories. Um, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato said, give me the stories that you tell your children and I'll give you your culture, meaning I'll give you your civilization. And so the stories that permeate within one civilization, they reveal a lot about its culture. And what we find is when we study these great civilizations, they all really begin with a story. So for example, if we look at the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks begin with Homer, with his Iliad and his Odyssey. If we look at Judaism, it begins with the story of Abraham. And if we look at Christianity, it begins with the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, alayhi salam. And when we look at Islam, we have the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So we can see their stories are fundamental to civilizations. Um, and stories are very important because stories are able to instill virtue within us. And you're, you're, you're from an educational background. When we look at these previous civilizations, um, you would see that the first things that people would learn were not the arithmetics, they were not the sciences, but rather in many civilizations, it was virtue. So for example, in, during the Mughal Empire, um, if you wanted to study in the Persian system, the first book that they made you read was a book by a Persian poet named Saadi called Gulistan. And the main reason was, is it was a story, it, it was a poem that contained a bunch of stories and the main reason was that it wanted to instill virtue within children at a young age. And then if you look at the golden age of Islam, the first book that they studied was actually the Quran, which is one third stories. Um, because these archetypes continue to find ourselves in our civilization. The most prominent archetype in the Quran is the archetype of Moses السلام, and Pharaoh, because the situation is constantly being played out today. And I would argue the best version of this today is likely in Syria. Um, so, so, so stories are fundamental to a civilization. So my first question to you, bro, just as an introduction, um, and, and we don't want to go too deep into this specific one because we will later on, is in your opinion, how foundational are stories to one's own civilization? Okay, so that was a fantastic introduction. And from your introduction, I think the listener can already gather that the idea that stories are an essential building block of a community or a people is not a new one. It's not really a new idea. Um, the 
so to just expand on that idea first a little further before kind of going back to your immediate question, any group that extends beyond blood ties, any group that, that extends beyond just the bonds of kinship needs a story in order to keep it together. Um, there are the actual stories, there are the actual stories that uh, you just mentioned, like origin myths, mm -hmm. or, or the, the, yeah, the origin myth of that, that society or that people and how they came together. There are also uh, collections of stories and narratives that form a much greater narrative that nearly every people have. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about the modern world since about, since about the 19th century onward is that standardized education has become the vehicle through which we tell these stories. Mm, yeah. So uh, to, put it, to, put it in even, uh, to put it in even clearer terms, modern nationalisms are essentially not possible without standardized education. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the world that we live in now, to be able to understand that us sitting here in Vancouver and someone in Newfoundland belong to the same country and belong to the same people, that type of story is not possible without a standardized education. Because uh, have you ever been to Newfoundland? No. Do, you have, do you have any actual association no. with this place? You don't have any no. family there. You don't have any personal experiences there. And yet it is through a standardized education that we have come to accept that we are actually one people. Uh, so uh, th for the way that we live now in nation states, stories are essential in keeping us together. Modern stories, actually even pre-modern stories, these overarching narratives tend to have uh, central themes that we find consistent across cultures. So uh, one is that these stories uh, usually have at their center a canonical text, a text by which truth is judged. This can be a religious scripture like the Quran, like the Bible, like the Torah, something like that. Uh, in the case of the American sense of peoplehood, the American constitution plays a central role as a canonical text. You also have central figures, heroes and villains. Sometimes mm -hmm. these are prophets, these are founding fathers. But you also have in these stories, in these big narratives. So I'm not just talking about the origin myths now, but I'm talking about the big narratives that permeate throughout an entire culture. You have pop culture and folk tales. And what you'll, what you'll notice, and we might go just a little bit off the rails here for a moment, but what you'll notice across different cultures is that the pop culture and the folk tales and the songs and the poems that exist tend to highlight particular virtues that, the, that those people in their story find valuable mm. um, and aspirational and motivational. Uh, so for just a momentary segue, uh, in about 2004, 2005, something, I, I can't remember the exact year, uh, Slumdog Millionaire came out. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you remember this, but for, for anyone who doesn't remember this, it was basically a Bollywood movie, but in English. So uh, I watched it in theaters. I enjoyed it. Uh, and when I told all my Indo-Canadian friends, like, hey, I just watched this movie. It was great. Mm -hmm. They're the only ones who didn't like it. 
all of my all of my East Indian friends didn't like it. Wow. So and and the reason that they didn't at the time that they didn't like it, they said it's exactly like every other Hindi movie we've ever seen. Like it's <laughs> got some poverty story from rags to riches. There's a love plot that kind of goes sideways. Um, there are some like sectarian tensions, and in the end, there's some like a few dance numbers. And anyways, so they said it was basically like every other Indian movie, but for the outsider, for someone who's not uh, steeped in that pop culture and those folk tales of the Indian subcontinent, it's something that felt fresh. Mm. I only share that just to demonstrate how one people become so used to their stories and their narratives and how to another people, this seems like something completely different. Mm. Um, and like I said before, these stories need standardized education uh, in order to permeate throughout a massive geographic territory. Mm. Um, I'm not even sure if I, I, I guess your question was how important are stories? Mm -hmm. Well, it was the... a very broad question, just yeah. as an introduction. Um, yeah. But bro, to be honest, one of the most eye-opening statements that I've heard in the last maybe month or so yeah. is when you told me that the idea of a, of a, of a, of a standardized curriculum was to instill nationalism. Yes. Um, and yeah. I've just been re-examining my entire time in, in high school um, based off of that, because mm -hmm. that essentially that's what it is, right? You mentioned the idea of looking at us uh, more in British Columbia and somebody who's in Quebec or somebody who's in Newfoundland or Nova Scotia. And we essentially are telling kind of the same story of how yes. we began. Um, we, we are telling the same story and we're also, um, so we have a hard time I'm trying to think of how to carefully phrase this. So when you live in a culture and you exist with certain stories that you're plugged into with certain canonical texts and central figures and folk tales, and you see truth in a different way mm -hmm. than someone who does not experience all of these things. Um, well, someone who doesn't experience all of these same things may see may see the contradictions in your existence. So uh, let me give just one example. Our national anthem says our home and native land. Right? We are taught that and that national anthem is chosen uh, very carefully to instill a particular sense of indigeneity among mm -hmm. a settler colonial population. We are not native here. Right. Unless you are an indigenous person, like un unless you belong to our First Nations community, you are not. Now, someone from outside of Canada, someone from outside the settler colonial experience, like someone who is indigenous to another part of the world, may hear us singing our national anthem and point that out. And it's something that we don't really think about because it's instilled in us in a very young age. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think it's really through educators. Um, who are able to identify these problems and are able to address it to us because, um, you know, I, I've never even thought about something like this. So um, we're beginning to see the importance of stories. Um, the, a topic I wanted to touch upon is this idea of creation stories and how every civilization has a creation story into, you know, the origins of the world, right? Yeah. From, from the Islamic, you know, Christian or, uh, or in Judaism, we have the story of Adam, um, mm -hmm. uh, which is fundamental to us. That's, our, that's kind of our creation story, although we have differences with one another. Um, the Hindus have the idea that Brahman created the world 
and that's how the world began. Um, but what's very interesting is now we look at this new atheist movement, or rather, I think it's better described as agnosticism, because there's just uncertainty. And for them, they're struggling to figure out their creation story, because it's always in a stage, state of change, perpetual change. So, you know, historically, it has been the, st the steady state model, the idea that this universe was always created. Uh, well, let, let me uh, let me just um, push back against you just for one moment, because uh, uh, so I believe that for the for the new atheist movement mm -hmm. as a as a group. And I can't so I can't go so far as to call them uh, a people, um, mm. but as a group they do have a story and they do have a narrative that they understand very well. Mm -hmm. And their story and their narrative is that the history of learning is characterized by those who have massive leaps in faith and believe in supernatural powers that were derailing intelligence and mm -hmm. those that were critical thinkers and were promoting intelligence. And this permeates into every book and every article and every presentation and every debate that ever features any new atheist. So if you watched um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos series, no. like I don't, it, it aired for one season, it was, it was actually pretty good. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is not a, is not a new atheist, but he circles in those waters. Yeah. And um, it, it, every episode had a constant theme, even when he talked about like um, Al-Haytham, like a, 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 one of the scientists who mm -hmm. was uh, essential in our study of light and, and optics. And he basically repackaged him as a skeptic and as a critical thinker, even though the guy was like an orthodox Muslim, right? Like he was mm -hmm. just so. Um, so, no, they, they have their they do have a story and they do have a narrative. This is not unlike and you as a student of history can can recognize this. It's not unlike the way that when communism came to the Muslim world, that Muslim communists were repackaging the conflict of Musa alayhi salam against Fir'aun as like mm -hmm. proletariat <laughs> Bani Israel against the bourgeoisie, you know, Fir'aun and his and his um, and his people. So I, I just wanted to push back there for a second mm -hmm. on the subject of the of the origin myth in specific in being like a foundational, as a, as a foundational mechanism to understand the beliefs of a people. Mm -hmm. That's what you're talking about. Uh, I think it's really important to mention that in terms of binding a people together, stories do not have to be true. Mm -hmm. true truth is not a, and, and many of the people within that, that group, that collective identity, may know that the story is not true. Mm. So uh, the modern day Zionist, in fact, the original Zionist, like from the, from the mid 19th century onward, um, uh, okay, late 19th century onward. So they didn't, they weren't practicing Jews, like the, for many of them were atheists. Yeah. And they still managed to use the Bible as a foundational document for their land claim over Palestine, even though they didn't believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible. Now, one thing, like if there was a Zionist sitting here, they would say, yeah, but they read very specific parts of the Bible. Like they look at the Bible as like a legitimate historical text. Um, but the supernatural truth behind the Bible, they by and large do not believe in that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I just wanted to push back there for a bit that the no, 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 I the, think the, story, right. the stories do not have to be true in order for them to be effective in creating a peoplehood. Mm-hmm. Um, we know as a fact that Plato and Aristotle did not believe in the gods of their people. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't, um, you know, Aristotle believed in a kind of monotheistic uh, primary mover type god. Um, so they didn't, so they don't, they don't have to be true um to be to be relevant mm-hmm. exactly and you know you you bring up this story of um um the japanese in world war ii um right. you mind exp- expanding upon that yeah so uh by the time the japanese were gearing up for war in the 20th century they um state shintoism evolved into believing that the emperor of japan was a god so they worship the emperor of, of Japan like a god. But the question that I have, not being an expert in Japanese society or Japanese politics or the, uh, the state Shinto mythology, is did they, really, did they really believe that Emperor Hirohito was a god? Like, did they believe he created the sun and the moon? Did they believe that he controls the heavens and the earth? Mm-hmm. But the, the follow-up question is, did it matter? Because they still flew fighter jets into aircraft carriers for that story. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, some people believed it, like the grunts who were flying these airplanes. Did the generals believe it? The people that grew up with him, did they believe it? The people that were undermining him, did they believe it? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And the thing is, it does not matter. Exactly. Actually, it is not relevant. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the point that I was trying to convey, which I completely concur with you, is that every civilization has a creation story. And yes. we, we begin to see many parallels in that they always have something that created everything. Um, mm-hmm. whether, whether it's God, as you know, the vast majority of people throughout history have conceptualized it, um, and you need, you need some type of prophet, right? So in, in these great religions, you know, in the Abrahamic faith, you, you can trace it to you know, Adam and uh, Abraham, alayhi salam, um, you look at Hinduism, Hinduism, you know, you have Krishna, you look at uh, China, for example, China had Confucius, right? Mm-hmm. And China, the China, I mean, you know, there's this argument that the Chinese were always um, atheists, which is completely false. I mean, if you study Chinese civilization, um, they have a god called Shang Ti, uh, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, the one that is in the heavens. Um, but they had Confucius who was a prophet. So when you look at the new atheist movement, you see the same parallels. Right, you know, their modern-day prophet uh, is probably Richard Dawkins. Right, mm-hmm. their canonized text is, you know, um, uh, I forgot Dawkins, God, the God Delusion, right? The God Delusion, and and there, uh, you could also um, extend that to the other works that they are that they are constantly producing. Um, uh, Stephen Hawking's God created the integer, uh, but then the, yeah. the, the right? rest, so, is, but so man you... created the rest. Like yes, they, so they they have foundational texts. Um, the, uh, of course, when you're describing China, obviously the impact of like nearly a hundred years of communist rule has, has morphed the Chinese history into what it is that you've already described. Mm -hmm. But even now, you know, the statistics are revealing that Confucianism is beginning to rise again in China. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you're beginning to see this, this emergence. So, um, I, I want to move on to our next topic, um, which, which I think is very important, is this idea of narrative identity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I was wondering if you can touch upon this, this idea of how these stories are related to our identities. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are many definitions floating around of what identity is. And the definition that I like best, um, and, and I'll explain why I like best in a moment, but the definition that I like best is that identity is a story that you tell about yourself. Mm -hmm. So even to understand who you are, there is a narrative to your life. And I like that definition best because it puts the narrator in the driver's seat. So you get to define who you are, not somebody else. By extension, a collective identity or a people is a group that tells a story about itself and the institutions within it. And so um, this has been a, a subject of... Um, of interest for me for the better part of a year because, uh, and this is something uh, for the listener may not know, but it's something that you and I have been working on for quite some time now, along with some other brothers as well, uh, that the identities that permeate throughout the Muslim world are, are not just complex, but Muslims tend to be plugged into multiple identities. Mm -hmm. So, the, the idea of an identity crisis, an identity crisis being someone who does not know who they are or where they belong, um, is very much a modern cosmopolitan uh, westernized industrialized problem. By and large, I, I'm not, this is not me saying nobody in the Muslim world has an identity crisis. What I am saying is that by and large, uh, Muslims have exactly the opposite problem. We have a surplus of identities. Mm. We juggle too many of them. Uh, exactly. So one story that, uh, that I've told you before, and I'll just, um, I'll just share here as well, is uh, a, a while back, about a year ago, when I was uh, a year and a half, chasing my daughter outside and speaking with some of my neighbors, and one of my neighbors asked me, so where are you from? And I said, uh, I'm Palestinian. And she said, oh, that's like our other neighbor. She's Jordanian. And I said, oh, no, actually, our other neighbor is also Palestinian. She said, but uh, she told me that she's Jordanian. Now, keep in mind, I'm not really fully plugged into the conversation at this point. I'm chasing after my daughter. I said, oh, yeah, but I'm also Jordanian. And she had this quizzical look on her face. like She had no idea what I was talking about. And she said, but she also told me, now my neighbor speaking about my other neighbor. She said, but she also told me that she grew up in the Emirates. So doesn't that make her from there? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, 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 she's Palestinian. And I was born in Saudi Arabia. She said, oh, so you're Saudi Arabian. I said, no, I'm Palestinian. <laughs> and this went on for like a few more minutes. And I said, okay, got to go. And I realized after she had no idea what I was talking about. Not a clue. And uh, this is just a small snapshot. Now it turns out, in the 20th century, that very much characterizes the Palestinian experience. Throughout the late Ottoman era, that was very common. So you have people like um, uh, revolutionaries like Fawzi al-Qawagji, who was a Turkmen Iraqi who was born in Tarablis, Lebanon, who fought in Palestine mm -hmm. and who was trained in the military academies in Istanbul you had um, all these people from all, from all over kind of mixing in, mixing in this way. And so what we leave with is a, an individual, 
right? What, essentially what I'm circling around here is that you find individual Muslims juggle their tribal identities, their local identities, their um, unrealized national identities like Baluch, like Pashtun, Mm-hmm. identities of a people who do not form um, a, a nation uh, or who do not belong to a nation state. You have these national identities like Pakistani, like Palestinian, like Afghan. Um, and then you also have your identity as a Muslim. And we are juggling these all the time. And what what the average Muslim can probably tell you is that we know when to wear these hats. We know when to switch one identity on and when to turn it off. Yeah. And that's not, that's not being manipulative. This is just the way that we've always existed. Similarly, we also are Vancouverites and we have our sub-districts in the greater Vancouver area that we belong to. And we understand the stories of those areas. We are Canadians and we are British Columbians. We belong to all of these other little stories. And so while you're non-Muslim neighbors who have grown up here and been here for generations, they may juggle one or two collective identities that they don't feel very strongly about anyway. Mm -hmm. Whereas you may be juggling six or seven different identities, all of which are integral to who you are as a person. Mm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, you, you bring up this excellent topic, which I wanted to move on to, is this idea of an identity crisis. Um, the vast majority of people that will be li- listening to this will be people who are living in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's particularly, it's, I think it's most relevant probably with Muslims, but this is also for many of my Sikh friends, for many of my Hindu friends as well, where they're having to balance out these many identities. Um, and I myself went through that identity crisis um, a couple of years back where, you know, I was trying to answer this question of, you know, uh, where where am I from, right? Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, this very difficult question because um, undeniably I have my Muslim background, right? Mm-hmm. But I can't trace that to a specific place. Um, I have the idea, I have, I have, you know, this idea that I was born in Multan, Pakistan, um, which I can't shed away. And now here I am as a Canadian. And so this was something I, I really struggled with. And in fact, I wrote a whole book on it. Um, mm-hmm. which I'm planning on publishing maybe in the next Allah, year. Allah. Inshallah. Um, but the, the basic idea is um, like the back cover basically says, you know, Ahmed is born Pakistani, mm-hmm. but now he's Canadian. But when he speaks to Canadians, they tell him he's not from here and he needs to go back. And when he goes back home to Pakistan, they say, you know, you're too Western, so you don't right. belong with us. So right. where do I belong? And so right. the book is, 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 is my journey, trying to figure out where I belong and um, the answer that I provided was, was the same answer given by um, Imam al-Ghazali in his Alchemy of Happiness, where mm-hmm. he, said that, he, said that, he said that the human being is essentially a heart. And that heart right. has been placed onto the earth. And the heart goes on its journey, just trying, to, just trying to accumulate enough provisions so that it can go back to where it originally came from, which was to its creator. And so to me, home symbolizes, you know, paradise, heaven, or being with, being with Allah. Um, and that's how I conceptualize. So when somebody says, where is home? Um, I see all of these, you know, I, I, I wrote a poem and I said, uh, Pakistan was the landing spot that I was placed at. 
and Canada was just uh, Canada was one of the one of the destinations I needed to go to before I headed back home, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is Allah. So um, you begin to see this identity crisis with many people. Many of our famous, we have many famous, uh, we have the famous Muslim actor Riz Ahmed, who did a whole podcast on this, on where are we from? Um, and as a Palestinian, um, how are you trying to address that question? Because even when we say Palestinian, I know to you that you're like, there's so many types of Palestinians, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you go about in trying to answer that question of where are you from specifically? Yeah, so the reason that, one thing that we kind of didn't get to is why do we tell stories? Hmm. What is the, the purpose behind them? And, and, and so far as I can tell, we, we tell stories to bind people together and we also t tell stories to teach lessons. Um, we continue to tell these stories so long as they make sense. Mm -hmm. And when they stop making sense, we stop telling these stories. Uh, a story will continue to make sense when it is backed by uh, either state institutions or other institutions of power. Many of the stories that you are plugged into no longer have any institutional backing to them. So, for example, you are a Muslim who must promote good and do uh, promote good and uh, forbid evil. Uh, you must um, exemplify the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You must hold a certain standard, right? But there is no Sharia court that's going to reprimand you for not doing any of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, it may be convenient to stop telling this story. And to just just live your life, man. Like, <laughs> like you could you could not you could just stop telling these stories, and there are all sorts of material benefits to stop doing that. You tell national stories to keep a people together, and as soon as those people seem to be fraying, those national stories are no longer convenient, and we stop telling those stories. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I want to say, why you may find anyone experiencing these crises, is because they may start telling a story in a context that no longer makes sense. So they're telling a story of um, honesty and reputation and trustworthiness and nobility in a society that does not value any of these things. You can, and we've, we've spoken about this before, but you can be a reprobate. Like you could be a degenerate. You could still walk into Best Buy and buy a TV. You could still buy a house. You could still get a mortgage. Mm -hmm. because your credit score is not determined by your virtues. It's determined by early and late payments that you've made over the last five or 10 years. It's, it's, it, it, so if you're continuing to tell a story that is not making sense in the context that you live in, that could be very challenging, mm -hmm. especially if that story is so central to who you are as a person. Um, if you think our situation is complex, like you and I juggling a Canadian identity and a uh, Pakistani or Palestinian identity. Imagine what it's like for um, people who have grown up in Qatar or the Emirates, and they are Syrian nationals or Lebanese nationals or Pakistani nationals or Indian or Bengali, and they live in this other country that's definitely not home, but it's actually the only country they've ever known. Like, mm -hmm. at least you and I have the added benefit of having a permanent citizenship mm -hmm. here. You could live in the Emirates for 50 years 
And you know that whole time, it's like renting a house. You know eventually the lease is up and you're going to go back home to a home that doesn't necessarily exist to you. You're not plugged into any of the stories there. Uh, in the uh, one, one description that I, I will get to the, the subject of Palestinian identity in just a second, but uh, one, um, one, one description that I like about, uh, about how someone belongs to a community is, is found in the works of uh, Etienne Wenger who developed a, a framework called Communities of Practice. And it's a learning theory, uh, but it's a learning theory that um, that works actually for a lot of different things, um, a, lo a lot of different applications. And I think it's relevant here and that Etienne Wenger talks about to belong to a community, you need to be engaged in a negotiation of meaning. That is like what you and I are engaged in here to be able to add to the conversation, to be able to re-edify, create documents and things like that. He talks about the shared repertoire, uh, a shared language, uh, slang, common terms that a community understands. And he talks about a joint venture and a joint venture really is the story component okay, mm -hmm. of a shared purpose or a shared meaning. If you don't have any of the, so if you don't have the ability to negotiate meaning with your country back home, if you don't have the shared repertoire of your country back home and you don't have the same purpose or meaning as the people of your country back home, do you actually belong there? Mm -hmm. And this is one thing that people may find in, uh, in both their adopted identities, uh, their settler colonial identity, be they American, Canadian, British, or their ancestral identity of the nation state that their parents originally come from, that maybe they do not have the same joint venture as the people over there. They don't feel like they're part of that same story heading in the same direction. Coming to the Palestinian story, there are a few themes that underpin um, every folktale, every central figure, every, mm -hmm. every uh, small and big narrative um, throughout every Palestinian story. There's, a, there's an underline, and I'm not the, I'm, I'm not the one to, to make this up. Um, Rashid Khaldi writes about it in his book, Palestinian Identity, which is, a sense of defeat as victory. Hmm. So uh, the Palestinian identity has uh, a pulse in the background that beats in every poem, in every song, which is that the whole world conspired against us, but we're still here. Hmm. More than... I'd say that if you want to find a common theme among the diaspora in the West, and, and by the West, by the way, I also include the diaspora in Brazil, Chile, uh, El Salvador, okay. Okay, the, the, the diaspora outside of the Muslim world. If you want a common thread between that diaspora, the diaspora in the camps, uh, and who have settled in Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and elsewhere, and those who live in Palestine, that would be probably the most common thread. Mm -hmm. Defeat as victory. That you'll find that once um, almost, uh, almost like clockwork every four years, like an Olympic event, um, Israel will come and pummel Gaza five more years into the past, um, destroy you know, uh, thousands of homes, 
uh, internally displaced thousands of people, that you'll find as soon as that's over, that Gazans will go out in parades, like they've won, like they're the ones who won. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a sense of interpreting uh, all of these defeats as a sense of invincibility, that even though the whole world has conspired against us or abandoned us or has forgotten about us, that we're still here. Mm. Now, that doesn't, going back to what I said earlier, that cannot be found in one story. You're mm. not going to find that in like one little, little handbook. What you, what you will find is that that is a common theme across all Palestinian stories. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for, me to, for me to hang on to, uh, to that identity has been a very important part of my life mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and now as a father of two children, I mean, my son has like a five foot tall, poster of Palestine in his room that has every village in wow. Palestine and all of the tribes that belong to all those villages. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a massive document that uh, traces the geographic and uh, ancestral integrity of the Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, this brings up an excellent question that I've always had. Um, you know, if you, in my life, the people who have had um, particularly in, in my age group, the people who have had the strongest form of nationality, of nationalism mm-hmm. within their identity, are those people whose countries are going through conflict and immense conflict. So in my yeah. life right now, um, you know, all of my Palestinian friends are very Palestinian. Like, mm-hmm. like they will, you know, if they, if they haven't told you they're Palestinian, they will, they will tell you they're Palestinian. Yeah. The um, sense of nationalism is very strong. Yeah, exactly. I, and right now, I, I have friends that are Uyghur, um, and you know the the unfortunate you know genocide um, or cultural genocide uh, being inflicted upon them um, has made them proud of their identity. And now every moment they're looking to tell you that they're Uyghur. In every classroom that they're in, I have one friend. In every Zoom classroom he's in, he needs to let people know that he's Uyghur and what's going on to his people. Um, right. So, uh, and, uh, and same thing goes with all my Syrian friends as well. So the, my question is, is what is it about oppression, about people being either on the, on the borders of a cultural genocide or an actual genocide? Um, how, what is the relation between that and that national identity? Why are they so keen because of these circumstances to hold on to their nationality, even when before they weren't even interested in it? Like for example, um, we had this Muslim author um, who, who stated in his book that he was a cultural Muslim. He didn't really mm-hmm. care about Islam. But right. when 9-11 occurred, he all of a sudden felt this responsibility that now mm-hmm. I am Muslim once my yeah. people started to get oppressed. Yeah. So my question to you as somebody who is Palestinian is mm-hmm. um, why do you think, you know, why, why do you think in these moments people are very keen on preserving their nationality? Right. So let me speak about... Um... And I know we'll probably end up having a totally separate conversation on the Palestinian issue in particular. So um, I don't want to spend too much time there, but I I will say this. Um, Palestinian Palestinian nationhood, Palestinian national identity evolved gradually and uh, organically, just like many other um, nationhoods um, that have existed and ceased to exist and 
will continue to exist in the future. Um, what accelerated the, um, well, actually to just go back momentarily, um, Palestine had an identity as a holy land, as Al-Ard al-Muqaddas, mm -hmm. uh, before it had an identity as a, uh, as a place for a people. So I should say that, that the, the unique geographic quality of the Southern Levant as a holy land was something that was recognized by Muslims and by Christians and by Jews um, well into, we can identify it into uh, Fada'il al-Quds literature in the eighth, ninth, 10th centuries. It's very old. So the idea of Palestine as a unique land that is south of the Litani River in, in Lebanon, so even parts of Lebanon today were historically considered kind of part of that holy land, um, west of the Jordan River, east of the Mediterranean, north of the Red Sea, uh, that had a unique place in the heart of mm -hmm. Muslims and scholars for a very long time. Uh, of course, the introduction of standardized education in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, which actually, well, it has a very interesting story all in itself and how it evolved from missionary schools and then Ottoman state-run schools. Uh, this also, th this put an accelerant on the idea of the people living here as being one people. Mm -hmm. um, but to answer your specific question, in the case of the Palestinians, Ironically, one of the things that really solidified their national story, and remember what I said, common to the national story of the Palestinians is that sense of defeat as victory. Mm -hmm. the, the catastrophe, the Nakba of 1948, displaced the urban elite. Do you mind explaining what the Nakba is very quickly? Yeah. So in 1948, um, the Zionist movement completed its essentially 60-year project at that point of establishing a Jewish state with a maximum number of Jewish settlers with a minimum number of indigenous Palestinians. And that was accomplished through an ethnic cleansing campaign that took place over the course of, of various months from 1947 to 1948, uh, culminating in a massive expulsion in May of 1948, but it had actually been a uh, process that was rapidly accelerating for the better part of 12 months up to that mm. point. Okay. So it symbolized the, and it's uh, remembered by Palestinians as the, as the moment where, as, as the point where 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes, uh, made as internally displaced refugees or, um, uh, or, uh, ex or externally placed refugees. And it also was the annihilation of the Palestinian society. It was this destruction of the world as they knew it. Um, what, what happened there though, was that the urban elite, the elite among the peasants and the destitute among the peasants, the Bedouins, the Christians and the Muslims were all displaced indiscriminately. So it's not like the urban elites fared better than the fellahin, than the peasants. And it's not like either of them were fared better than the Bedouins, um, depending on the region of the country that you're talking about, of course. And what that created in the camps was a shared suffering. 
mm. and the birth of a shared story, a new shared story. What I described to you about the thing that that common thread in Palestinian identity, that's not thousands of years old. That's about a hundred years old, right? mm-hmm. like, or slightly less than that. So like 70, 70 years old. That happens with all people who, inc- who, who experience a shared form of suffering. Suffering is a very powerful experience. You'll notice also that Jews have a very deep-rooted yeah. sense of shared suffering when everyone has the similar gaps in their family tree. You know, or of course, people of uh, European origin, at least we should say, mm-hmm. have this shared gaps in their family tree. That's something that, and the more the more exclusive your commonality is, the more intense the bond. Mm, okay. So uh, I think the the Uyghur people are experiencing something very similar right now. Unfortunately, this is obviously not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what the what the Chinese government will discover is that they are creating a sense a stronger sense of Uyghur peoplehood than Mm -hmm. perhaps whatever could have existed without their genocide exactly and I I was just watching this documentary the other day about this um about this Uyghur in Pakistan who has his own Uyghur school now and he's teaching them you know the Uyghur language and the culture and the history and the Chinese government is you know trying is forcing him to stop but he's saying now, you know, now more than ever is the time I need to continue, right? Yeah. I need to, I need to continue preserving, uh, preserving our heritage, right? Yeah. So um, this is, um, you know, I, I, you, you've definitely answered my question, is that people, when they suffer together, they undeniably develop a sense of identity and mm-hmm. that, that they are a people. Right. Um, and, and, and actually, you will find that... Uh, I, 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 I discovered this as an adult, I didn't realize it uh, growing up, is that there was something that I did that many other Palestinians do, which is to almost to take pride in their suffering. Mm-hmm. So when uh, you'll find very common, and I'm sure this is in, in uh, the Indo-Pak community as well, where you'll ask someone, where are you from? And they'll take pride if they're in a ver- from a very nice neighborhood. Maybe mm-hmm. they're from a nice part of Lahore, or they're or, from a nice part of Karachi. Or if, they're in, if they have a higher caste system, if they're higher oh, okay. caste system. Right. That, that's very predominant, even today, yeah. within Muslim so, so I often find among Palestinians when I say like, oh, you know, where, where are you from? And they'll say, Mukhayyam uh, al-Am'ari, from the Am'ari refugee camp, or Jabalia, the Jabalia refugee camp. So they take pride in this sense that they come from the refugees that there's a sense, almost like a sense of legitimacy or street credit mm-hmm. that, yeah. that they are from this place. Um, and and that's, a, that's something that you, you, I would not be surprised if in a few generations we'll find with the Syrian community and, uh, and with the Uyghur community as well. Mm-hmm. So this, this brings up another excellent point. So in, in, the, in, the, in the Indo-Pak um, community, um, to this day, there's still remnants of this caste system that has been derived from Hinduism, right? So you have the four castes. You have the uh, you have the Brahman, which are which are the priest class. You have the Kshatriya, which are the warrior class. You have yeah. the Vishya, which are the merchant class, and you have the Shudra, which are like mm-hmm. the servants. Um, so, um, for example, in my family, we have this idea of we are from the Rajputs, who were in the military during the Mughals. Um, okay. And um, then we even have a specific branch called Manj Rajput. So 
something that's very fascinating is the reason why we're always taught to tell people we are Manjraj foods is because then you get, you get, you get like a sense of, um, like on Twitter and Instagram, you have the approval check. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you, yeah. you get that check because when you say Manjraj food, people know you are legit because a lot okay. of people adopt the Rajput identity, although they are not Rajputs. Yeah. Similar to how you have many Muslims who begin to adopt the Sayyid, even though they're not Sayyid, right? right. So it's this idea that people haven't, people are not content with their identity or that their identity is lost. And now they begin to either adopt other people's identities or to create their own. Yes. And also, so in those uh, national narratives that we talked about earlier, um, there is a relationship between the central figures that exist in that story and uh, your, your potential status in society. And the relationship essentially goes like this. The closer you are to the central figures of a story, either through lineage, like in the case of being from Ahlul Bayt, being mm-hmm. from the uh, lineage of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or being from Quraysh, so being a descendant of one of the Sahaba, or just being from that tribe, uh, mm-hmm. gives you a one-up, which for the vast majority of Islamic history was very important. It's very, very important. Um, and we can probably have another, another conversation as to why that is. Uh, in the case of the United States, being part of the original settler community, that's a polite way of me saying uh, being white um, mm-hmm. and looking like the forefathers and having the, um, or at least claiming to have the beliefs of the forefathers uh, gives you a greater sense of legitimacy or a higher status in the society than if you are not part of the original settler community. Mm-hmm. Um, in, uh, I mean, we could think of numerous examples of, uh, in the Soviet Union, it wasn't accidental that Stalin had photos of himself doctored to appear closer to Lenin than he actually was. Um, mm-hmm. He was already part of kind of the central, the central clique but he wanted to appear even closer to give him a greater sense of legit, greater sense of legitimacy. The higher, the closer you are to the central figures of the story, the higher your status is in society. Um, of course, if that story is very important, what you obviously have found in the Indian subcontinent is that these stories are still very important mm-hmm. and they have institutional legitimacy. That is, um, legitimacy backed by your ability to get a job, your um, likelihood of probably winning in court um, and how you are perceived by the judicial system. They probably have, and this is with like, I have very, very poor knowledge of the way the Indian subcontinent ticks. So I'm making assumptions and you could just correct me if I'm right or wrong. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so, so yeah, okay. So it's the blind leading the blind. But these stories probably have immense relevance for who you are able to marry. Mm-hmm. And so, so long as the story remains important, uh, then, of course, people will aspire to be closer to those central figures in the story. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, people, um, p- people do not want to shed away the sense of identity, particularly yeah. with marriage. Um, there are many people who, um, many, many people who will only marry somebody who's still in their caste level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm speaking about Muslims. I'm not speaking just about, you know, uh, you know, Hindus uh, or Sikhs. There's many Muslims who still adopt this, this caste system to this day. And it all comes down to the same topic, right? It's this, it's this topic of stories and identity. 
mm-hmm. and how stories are ultimately forming our identities. Um, you uh, know, I, I, yeah. I will, because I know that we're running short on time. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that as I've undertaken um, the, the research that I've been, uh, that I've been doing over the last the better part of a year, uh, I, I'm more sympathetic. No, no, no. Maybe that's not the right word. I, I'm not as quick to judge uh, people who still plug into multiple stories. Mm. So, okay, I say that only because of what you just said at the end, and this is a very common theme in uh, in the Muslim community in the diaspora, which is that we uh, are hanging on to these old traditions and, um, you know, these people, the Fijians are only marrying Fijians and the Arabs are only marrying Arabs. And why can't they just accept their, you know, greater Muslim identity, like, just like the Sahaba, you know, the Aus and the Khazraj married from Quraysh and uh, Bilal radiallahu anh married the sister of Abdurrahman ibn Auf. And why can't we just live to this, uh, you know, higher order? And I, and I get that. I do, I do understand, I, I understand it. Um, I just have, I feel like I'm, I'm not as quick to judge people who are still living in other narratives because they're very hard to shake. Um, that's all. I'm, I, I'm, like, I, I'm not rebuking those people. Yeah. I'm not rebuking people, for example, who only <laughs> marry um, from, the, from, for example, the same country. But what I am re- rebuking, for example, is the caste system component. Um, yeah. Because people still inherently believe that they are inherently superior to other people because of this title. Right. Right. That's right. the part that I'm rebuking. Um, yeah. But I, I think, it, you know, it gives people still that sense of superiority that they're trying to look for. Um, yeah. Anything to bolster the ego. Um, yeah. So, so, so with that, I think that, I think that that's a great note to end off on. Um, if you have any last words, any last th- uh, thoughts, please share them. Uh, no, this was uh, a lot of fun. Jazakallah khair for having me on. And, uh, I can't wait to do this again sometime. Inshallah. It's, it's great to have somebody as educated as you, Brother Bassam. And for those, for those who are listening in the lower mainland, uh, just know that Brother Bassam is, mashallah, is a gem who is hidden. <laughs> uh, <laughs> unless you go to Iqra school, you will get in touch with him because I'm often in, the, in, the, in that public spotlight so people know me. But soon, inshallah, within these coming podcasts, people will get to know you as well. Well, Jazakallah khair for the very kind words. Uh, I, I, I don't know how to respond to that because uh, I, I've often said, especially to my students who teach that, who I teach that uh, being an adult is 90% pretending like you know what you're doing <laughs> and just not letting, not letting the children figure out that you actually have no idea <laughs> what you're doing or what you're talking about. And so I've made it for the better part of an hour without being exposed as a charlatan. So I've survived for one more day. <laughs> so, but uh, but no thanks so much for having me on no worries no worries and to everybody we hope you enjoyed the first podcast um inshallah there will be more to come um and with that we will cu- conclude jazakumullah khairan assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh